0: last week, uh, probably remember that we are in the second week of a series uh, this morning called The Ghost. And as I mentioned last week, after 300 years of being told by science that everything that happens in the world can be explained naturally, there still persists in our culture a belief in the supernatural. The Bible, of course, encourages that belief in the supernatural. Not in any belief, not in all beliefs, but in a specific belief, a specific supernatural being and power that's a, a work, that is a that is at work and alive in our world today. In this series, we're focusing on the third member of the Trinity, who many traditions have referred to in the past as the Holy Ghost. That's, why, that's where we get the title, the Ghost, but who we would refer to as the Holy Spirit. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this week is found in Acts chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible... Like for you to turn with me in it to Acts chapter 2. Those of you who are new, we'll put the verses up on the screen for you. Those of you who are regulars, if you've been here more than a few times, you should know to bring a Bible with you every single week because that's what we're always going to be preaching from. And you need to be able to go back and review notes and things as you read in your Bible. Acts chapter 2. Now, just a quick review from last week. Uh, We saw that at creation, God breathed his very life into human beings. This is how... We were designed, human beings, with the life of God in us. But when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, the life of God in them departed. The Spirit of God left the building, so to speak, leaving every human being since them born into the world incomplete, spiritually dead, uh, just flesh, as the Bible often refers to human beings. But almost as soon as that happened with Adam and Eve, God begins to hint throughout the Old Testament that a day is coming in the future in which he would make it possible for people to be made whole with the Spirit of God again. And then by the time you make it to the prophets, he begins not just to hint at it, but to say it explicitly. 800 years after he last spoke through a prophet about the Spirit of God, something mysterious happens in Jerusalem. It's after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection— It's something phenomenal, something inexplicable. And I want to read about it this morning, as I said, from Acts chapter 2. Let's start reading at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they, he's talking about the disciples here, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated And came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I said that this was mysterious, phenomenal, inexplicable. Because what I want you to watch now is the reaction of the people who were around to witness this. Verse 5. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language. And then the writer lists all the nations that were there, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Now, that's how perplexing this whole thing is to these people. And and I think you can probably imagine that. Just to be clear, because there's a lot of confusion in people's minds when they hear the word tongues spoken of in the context of the Bible, uh, because there's a lot of confusion about that, I want to just make sure that we understand what's happening here. These disciples are suddenly speaking in the native languages, the native tongues of all the different places that the Jewish people gathered in Jerusalem are from. So they're speaking the language of these other nations. Now, the disciples were uneducated men. They hadn't studied all of these languages. They couldn't speak these languages. But the Spirit of God supernaturally enabled them to do so. So, for instance... Uh, I don't know French, never studied it. Au contraire, Pierre, is about my, the extent of my, uh, of my French. But imagine if I just broke out in French right now, speaking complex thoughts and sentences, and then someone here, perhaps, who spoke French fluently, uh, maybe they stood up and they started interpreting it for you. you. You would say, what's going on here? Well, that's what's happening in this passage. Now you might be thinking to yourself, you might be thinking, "Okay, I get that, but this is kind of weird. Why that? Why languages? Why why are they they speaking in the native tongues of the people of these nations around them? Why not have them do something else that would get people's attention? Like some mighty act of strength. Maybe they lift a camel or something or or, or maybe they maybe they maybe they Uh, to just take off and they they suddenly fly through the air on their own? I mean, that would get people's attention. Why have them speak in tongues? Why have them speak in languages? And that's a brilliant question that you've asked. And I'm not going to answer it, at least not right now. I'm going to answer it in just a few minutes, okay? Let's move on for now. People are confused. Some even think that these guys are drunk. But watch this, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, by the way, just let me say, he's saying it's too early in the morning to be drunk. I would just argue he clearly doesn't know some of my old friends, but I get, I get his point nonetheless. He says, no, it's not that they're drunk. It's too early in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to quote from back in the Old Testament prophet, prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 28, where Joel said this. In the last days, this is one of these explicit places I told you that God spoke about. The fact that there would be a day that people could be filled with the Spirit again. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now what Peter says then is that this thing that's happening is a fulfillment of what God had hinted about ever since Adam and Eve and then what God had promised explicitly in the prophet Joel, that men and women, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, could once again have the life of God in them. That promise, Peter says, in that moment he says is now starting to come true. Now here's where I want to here's where I want to go with this this morning. I want to ask what does this passage teach us about the Holy Spirit? What do we learn about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers from this passage? And here's the answer in short form, okay? This passage points us to two aspects of the Spirit's work in the lives of Christ's followers. And I'm going to use these two words, power and presence. Power and presence. Let me just start with power. In what sense does this passage teach us that the Holy Spirit brings power? Well, first, I want to talk about power for evangelism, power for the spread of of the gospel. Because it's impossible to understand this passage apart from God's great purpose to empower his people with the spirit so that they will spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, just a few verses before this incredible event, the Lord Jesus told the disciples very plainly, watch this, Acts chapter one, verse eight, just before this event happens, he says, you will receive what? You will receive what? power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Notice the context here is evangelism. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In fact, this is what the book of Acts is a record of. It's how a small band of obscure, uneducated men and women from a marginal class in a marginal people group in the Roman Empire within two centuries, became the most powerful force in that Roman Empire. And then long after that empire has collapsed, we're still participating in the same movement today that they began over 2,000 years ago. See, that in and of itself is enough to demonstrate the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit for evangelism. But here's a question that, in my experience rarely gets asked about Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he says, you're going to be my witnesses, you know, all people all over, the, all over the earth. Here's a question that I think rarely gets asked. What would cause a band of nationalistic, Gentile-hating Jewish men to care enough to take the gospel to other cultures and ethnicities and risk their lives doing it? What would cause them to do that? A few minutes ago, you guys asked me this brilliant question about why tongues? Why languages to get people's attention as opposed to something else, maybe perhaps even more remarkable? Well, if you notice in this passage, there's a long list of nations here. I read through that whole list of nations, right? The last time that you see a list of the table of the nations is in Genesis chapter 10. And then immediately following that, in chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11 records how human beings are trying to build a tower at a place called, anybody know the answer? Babel, that's right. The word babel means confusion. Now, I don't know if you remember what happened there. But because humanity's hearts were so filled with the desire to make a name for themselves, for self-glorification, they wanted to build a monument to themselves in opposition to God. But God there caused their language to stop working the way that it had up until that point. There'd been one common language in the world up until that point. But suddenly, at Babel... People begin to speak in different languages. It was a curse on people. They couldn't express themselves to one another in the way that they once had. They couldn't understand one another in the way that they once had. Language broke down. But here in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, the curse of Babel is lifted for a moment. And all of the nations hear the gospel spoken in their own native tongue, in their own language. Now, here's the point. When human beings try to set themselves up autonomously from God, as Adam and Eve did and then as some of their descendants were doing at Babel, the result is always going to be that human community is torn apart. Racial and cultural hostility and nationalism are a direct result of, the, of autonomy from God. But when the Holy Spirit fills a person or a group of people, the Holy Spirit is so powerful that he can even break through powerful human nationalism and racial biases and cultural hostility to create human community that transcends those things. These Jewish men will make enormous sacrifices to take the gospel to people that they wouldn't have even sat with to eat before this event. Some of them will give their very lives for this cause. You see, where Babel was the place where human community broke down, this moment in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down and fills these men, was the beginning of a new community made up of people who would be indwelled by the same Holy Spirit, and because of his power, this new community would transcend every human barrier to community. Gender, and race, and nationality, and culture, and socioeconomic status, every single barrier to community. The Holy Spirit would create people, in people, the ability to transcend all of those barriers. And this new community would be called the church. The church. Why would these Jewish, Gentile-hating men be willing to take the gospel to people they wouldn't have even sat down to eat with before? That's the power of the Holy Spirit who has ensured by his power That the gospel would overcome every obstacle, so that even we here, two thousand years later, would be able to hear it today. But it's just not—it's not just what the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, is not just power for evangelism. The Holy Spirit also brings power for profound personal transformation now where do i see that in this passage well i want you to look back at the beginning of this passage the author writes this he says in verse one he says when the day of pentecost came now that's very important any time in scripture where you see someone where you see the author include a specific reference to a specific day or kind of uh, a celebration or feast—that's incredibly important. So, for instance, let me just give an example. If I if I said to you, uh, I broke my ankle uh, the other day, you would go, "Oh, well, that's that's terrible." But if I said, on my birthday, I broke my ankle, you'd be like, "Well, that's that's just double terrible. That would happen on your birthday, right?" The reference of my birthday is incredibly important, right? Well, in here, when he says that the day. When the day of Pentecost came, that's a very important reference to understand. What's the day of Pentecost about? Well, Pentecost was actually a feast that God had commanded back in the Mosaic Law for the nation of Israel. It was originally called the Feast of First Fruits. Because Israel, you see, was a, it was a farming society. So when the harvest would first start coming in, the first fruits of the orchard, the first fruits of the harvest, they were brought in and they were eaten as a way of saying thanksgiving to the God of the harvest. It was a way of of thanking God for the harvest that was coming in. And the feast was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. That's where you get the word Pentecost. It's from our Greek and our Latin word for 50 or or 5. And this is why you have people from all of the nations in Jerusalem. They have come here for the feast. Now, it's no coincidence, you see, that the Spirit of God came on this day. Think about what first fruits means. You're eating the first fruits of the harvest. Not all of the harvest, because all of the harvest hasn't come in yet. You're just eating the first fruits of the harvest, right? First fruits means that you're getting a small experience of what is yet to come, right? Now watch this. In Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says this. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Now wait a minute. I'm going to go on, but just stop. What does he say? He's saying, Paul is looking around the world and he's saying, look, everything in the world is falling apart. Like trees grow and die, grass grows and then withers. Families grow and develop and then die off. Everything in this planet is doing the opposite of what it was designed to do, to flourish. He's saying that everything in the world is constantly falling apart, including your bodies. In fact, those of you who uh, perhaps are old enough You understand exactly what it means when it says that all of creation is groaning. That's what it's like when you get older. You get up in the morning and you just groan. Nothing works right the way it's supposed to, right? That's what Paul is saying. Now, he goes on and he says, not only only is all of creation growing, not only so, but we ourselves who have, what's the word that he uses? The first fruits. Of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about a day still off in the future. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, Paul says. Now, what's his point? He's saying that the Spirit of God has been given to us, those who believe in Christ, to transform once self centered. Broken people from the inside out into a community of people called the church who live lives now that look like what life will one day be in the still future kingdom of God. When he redoes the entire world so that the world is exactly what he once created it to be. In other words, we live now, we're The church is a little sample. We're the first fruits. Not the whole thing, but the first fruits of what is one day going to be true in the future. That he so transforms us that we can live that kind of life. As I said earlier, people who can relate to one another in a way that transcends racism or classism or sexism or nationalism. People who don't stay silent in the face of social injustice. People who can forgive others in the way that God has forgiven us. People here in the local church who don't use sex and money and power for selfish purposes. People whose identity is not found in their gender or in their work or in their socioeconomic status, but in Christ. People who live with hope, not despair. People who love others and work not only for their spiritual renewal, but also for social and cultural renewal. That's what the local church is supposed to be. See, we're Paul uses the word first fruits. Let me, let me use a different word. Let me use the word advertisement. We're just like we're an advertisement of what life is going to look like one day in the future when God rules the world. When people look inside at the local church, we are people that have been so transformed, so changed, that they see a taste of what it would look like to live under the rule and the reign of God. And they say, that looks good. I want that. It's power for transformation, for deep, personal, profound transformation. And power for evangelism, too. And I want to just sort of, I want to combine those two things, and I want to illustrate them in, in, one, in one story. Some of you are probably familiar with uh, the name William Wilberforce. Anybody heard that name? Raise your hand. Okay. Wilberforce was born in 1759 into an aristocratic, wealthy, white family in England. They were a religious family, but Wilberforce left all of that behind him when he went to Cambridge University, and he just began to live his life like he even said. He, he said, I began to live my life as if the pursuit of my happiness was the most important thing in the world, no matter the cost. Wilberforce was a, a very popular guy. And by the, listen to this. By the age of 21, Wilberforce was elected to parliament. Over time, though, some of his friends began to challenge the way that he was living his life, and at the age of 27, Wilberforce became a follower of Christ. Through a series of events, Wilberforce became convinced that of all the people in England whom God could have called, that God had called him to use his power and position to abolish slavery in England. Wilberforce would go on to fight for the abolishment of slavery throughout the rest of his life Through political defeats, through health and family crises And even ultimately, he became financially destitute because of his battle for this On July twenty sixth, 1833, just three days before his death As a result of all of the years of his work the Emancipation Bill passed Parliament abolishing slavery in England and then paving the way for the same bill to be passed in America 25 to 30 years later. Now, here's, here's, here's the thing that I want to ask you. What business does a self-centered, wealthy, white aristocrat have working to end the scourge of slavery for people whom he would have never sat down and ate with before? What business does he have doing that? And the answer to that question, I think, is none. Except that's the kind of profound personal transformation that the Holy Spirit can bring into people's lives. He would have been the last person that any of us would have said would be the right guy to fight for the abolishment of slavery. But when the Holy Spirit brings that kind of transformation, deep, profound, personal transformation into a person's life, it can change them in that significant of a way that he becomes the very person that God chooses to you. Look, there there are many ways that the Holy Spirit can bring profound personal transformation into your life. But here on the heels of the 4th of July, may I especially remind you that the gospel and nationalism or racial bias or cultural narrowness or bias of any kind are mutually exclusive. As I was thinking of William Wilberforce, I was reminded of a tweet that I saw some time ago by the comedian Chris Rock. Anybody familiar with Chris Rock? Yeah. He tweeted this, and it wasn't intended to be funny. In fact, I thought it was very profound. He said this. Apartheid was legal. The Holocaust was legal. Slavery was legal. Colonialism was legal. Legality is a matter of power, not justice. Now, what I would say to you many of whom here in this room don't experience bias of any kind. You're not, the, you're not on the receiving end of bias of any kind. I would just say, one of the changes that the Holy Spirit would make in your life is that you would be kind, become the kind of person who would never put your nationalism or your race or your politics or your cultural narrowness in the way of decrying injustice in whatever form that it takes. Whether it's re- with regard to our nation's immigration policies, to racial injustices, to any kind of social injustice that you see in your corner of the world. That's one of the changes. It's just one way that the Holy Spirit would bring about profound personal transformation in your life. That's what the local church is called to be, the kind of place that recognizes the value of human beings regardless of their nation, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, regardless of their age, regardless of their socioeconomic status. That's the attitude that people who have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the attitude that we're to carry. And that's what we say over here on The Vision. When we speak of our vision, we say that we want to bring spiritual renewal. Yes, we want to introduce people to Christ. We also want to bring social and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. And a part of that, folks, a part of that is being the kind of people we would never put our nation nationalism, our race, our politics, or anything else above the way that people are treated. Never. It's who we're called to be. The Holy Spirit is so powerful that He can change in you, He can change you in whatever way you need to change from the inside out into a whole new person who lives a life reflective of the way that God always intended life to be lived. That's the kind of power that he has. Okay, so we've talked about power for evangelism. The Holy Spirit is, he's taken, he's made sure, he's ensured that all of the obstacles to the gospel that would be necessary for the gospel to go forward so that even we are able to partake in it today. He's made sure that all of those obstacles are removed. And that includes changing people like even the disciples to people who'd be willing to make any sacrifice to take the gospel forward okay that's 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 power but i want to talk now as we close i want to talk about this other aspect of the spirit's work in believers lives and it's the word presence the word presence I want you to notice that in this passage, the text tells us that there was a sound that came from heaven that sounded like a mighty wind. And then the text goes on and tells us that there was fire, something like tongues of fire resting on the heads of the apostles. Now, here's the thing when God shows up back in the Old Testament to reveal his presence, it always happens with wind and fire. Sometimes it's wind, sometimes it's fire, sometimes it's wind and fire. He always reveals himself with wind and fire. Think of Moses. When God gives Israel the law, he reveals himself to Moses by fire. Every time God reveals himself, it's through wind and through fire. And so this moment in Acts chapter two, God is saying that this is his living presence coming down to touch each of these apostles individually. Now, what I want you to see is this. When the presence of God in the form of the Spirit fills a person, it is not in some kind of abstract or naked uh, power. Because when these men start to speak, what do they speak of? They don't just speak of, you know, well, you know, I've got the power, or I've got the force, or what? They don't speak about that kind of thing. What do they speak of? They speak of the wonder and the glories of God. And where is the wonder and the glory of God seen most clearly and most powerfully? Where? At the cross of Christ, where God's love and God's justice kiss and the blood of Jesus is poured out for broken and sinful people. When the Holy Spirit fills a person When the presence of God comes to fill a person, you have an experience of truth. Namely, that God is not just some abstract power like the force in Star Wars, nor is he just the God, whoever that is that you want him to be, nor is he just any God that you want to worship in any way that you would want to worship him. He is a specific person. There is a removal of the veil that keeps human beings from seeing that God has been fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. God's presence fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel writer John said it this way, out of his fullness, he's talking about Jesus, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. When the presence of God fills a person, there is a removal of the veil that allows you to see, for the first time, that Jesus Christ is the God of Acts chapter 2, the God of the Bible, and the God of this world, the God of this world. Now, let me just say that if that has not become clear to you who God is, then you have not had an experience of the real God, and you have not been filled with the presence of the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit always reveals that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. And that it is only in the death of Christ on the cross that you, that the punishment that you deserve could be paid for so that you could be made alive by the Spirit of God. And I would ask you this, have you had that revelation yet? Because if you haven't, you need to know this morning that you are still spiritually dead. And you may say, well, I'm spiritual, I practice yoga, I meditate, whatever. Sorry, you are still spiritually dead. My counsel to you would be to ask God now in the privacy of your seat to show you that truth about himself that he was fully revealed, that his presence was fully there in the person of Jesus Christ so that you can come alive to the life that God always intended for you to live. Now, for those of you who have come to believe in Christ, do not tell me that you can't change, Don't tell me that you're too old to change. Don't tell me that you're too set in your ways that you can't change. Don't tell me that you are so deeply uh, affected by something that you were taught or that uh, that your parents modeled for you or something that you can't possibly change. Here's what I have to say to that. Au contraire, Pierre. The very power who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of you. And if he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can change you. No matter what it is that needs to be changed. He has the power to do that. So don't tell me that you can't change. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. For those of you who have never come to a place where you have recognized that the person of God was present in Jesus Christ, I pray, I ask that just right now, I would ask that you ask God to reveal that truth to you. For those of you who have already come to that place where you have recognized that, what is there in you that the Spirit of God would change? That you think can't possibly be changed, that no power could possibly change that in you at this point in your life. Would you just call that to the front of your mind? And would you just rejoice in this moment that the power of God is present in your life now, and that there's nothing that He can't change in you? Lord Jesus Christ, We want to thank you that you made possible that the very life of God could be present in the lives of sinful human beings through your death on the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to people here this morning, that your presence would so fill them that they they recognize that you, Lord Jesus, Or God in the flesh. And that God is not just some abstract power. He's not just any God, but that he is fully present in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And that as a result of that, that he would become fully present in the lives of the people here in this room this morning. And Lord, I would ask you, would you change us to be the kind of people who reflect lives that look like what life will look like at some point in the future? And Lord, would you make us into the kind of community that transcends every kind of racial or cultural bias, nationalism, sexism, anything else, so that we could be a kind of community that reflects your love for people of all kinds and all places. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship you.